Welcome to Parsha Panorama for Parsha Noach. We pick up from where we left off in Bereshis. Hashem has decided He's going to destroy the world. And it was in the very last passages of Bereshis, actually, that we were introduced to Noach for the first time. He was the son of Lamech, and Noach was supposed to mark the end of the suffering in the world, the end of the misery. And indeed, Hashem was going to put the world out of its misery, but not in the way that Lamech had intended, because Hashem was actually going to destroy the world. Obviously not good. Anyway, we get to Parshas Noach, and now we are looking at the beginning of the end. Um, or you might call it the end of the beginning, actually. The end of Bereshis, the end of, of life as they all knew it. And so before we get to the specific components that make up Parshas Noach, as we always say, we go through the whole of the Parsha, and we look at the sum of its parts. We look at all of the different uh, specific uh, topics in the Parsha. Uh, but before we do that, let's uh, try to get a global perspective, a bird's eye view, if you will, of Parshas Noach. What is Parshas Noach ultimately about? So we spoke last week about how Hashem created the world in Bereshis. And it began with creation, but ended with destruction. Hashem created the world and saw it was good, and then he looked at the world later, a few generations later, and it was bad. And he was going to ultimately destroy the world. So if you consider that, when we get to Noah, we actually find the opposite of that. Noah begins with destruction, but it culminates into recreation. Hashem recreates the world in Parshish Noah. But although... It seems that Noah would be plan B for the world. We know that plan B wasn't flawless because Hashem's intervention in the world, although he says at the end of the flood, I'm never going to do something like this again, Hashem does at least intervene in the affairs of mankind, not in the door of Hamabel, but again, in the door of Haflaga, the generation of the dispersion. This is the generation that built Migdal Babel, the Tower of Babel, and what we need to understand is why Hashem ultimately felt the need to intervene in that generation. You know, Hashem looked like at the end of the flood that he was going to back off. You know, I can't mess around anymore. And then Hashem says, oh, wait, this I must stop. So we'll have to get to that because it's really a dubious story and really hard to understand in light of Hashem's uh, his seemingly forced intervention, which, quite frankly, does not seem to be something that should have been forced. It does not seem like something that if Hashem didn't do anything about it, it would have really made such a big deal. So we have to explain that. So ultimately, I would say that Parshas Noach is the plan B for the world, but then the modified version, plan C, the introduction to plan C. Because again, during the Dor HaFlaga, something went amiss, and therefore Hashem had to start over again, not the entire world maybe, but his, his plan. Hashem had to, quote-unquote, redirect his plan. And again, this is obviously one of the theological challenges that we also have to confront right now because we know that God foresaw everything, he foresees everything, and so Hashem had to go into this knowing that he was going to be redirecting his plan and teaching certain lessons along the way. So now let's get to the specific components of Noah. I remind you that the way I break up the parsha may not be the way you do, but I do it in a way that's simple, it, uh, it isolates each story and topic in a way that you can readily understand it, um, and hopefully that'll be helpful for you. So I have five sections for Parshas Noach. 
first section is really just the Mabel, the Flood, and all of its immediate aftermath. So that would include the story of the O-Raven, the Yona, the, the raven or the crow, and the dove, where Noach sends out the birds, trying to see that if the, you know, after everything, after Noach has built the table, the table after it's been flooding for, for months on end, um, if everything is dried up. We have Noah bringing his carbonos in that section, where Hashem restores the, the, the seasons. He recommands mankind to do peru to, to procreate. Uh, Noah actually receives a new diet that he's allowed to eat animals. Um, and then we have the rainbow, in which Hashem uh, makes a bris with Noah, saying that you know he's not going to that, that he that, that he makes a bris with Noah, and uh, and we and we're reminded that. Um, you know, there's this this covenant that that Hashem has with man, starting from Noah, and again, Hashem's not going to destroy the world again. So that's all section one. That's the Mabel, it's the flood, and its immediate aftermath. Then we have the esoteric story of Noah and the, and the vineyard. And Noah plants a vineyard, and his son Chum, with the involvement possibly of Canaan. There are different ways to read the story, but but what Chum does. From the Pashup shot of the Chumash, he just, you know, he looks at the nakedness of his father, shame and Yafes. Ultimately, uh, the other sons of Noach, they ultimately cover Noach's nakedness. Though Chazal right away tell us that, well, what really happened was that, you know, it wasn't just that he looked at him. It had to be something, there was a physical action that he did because the Pasuk says that Noach realized after he was drunk um, what happened, um, you know, overnight, um, what, um, he realized what his son had done. And so Chazal say that, that Chum castrated him. Rashi quotes the Gemara Sanhedrin, Tupshatim, um, that what, what does it refer to? Does it refer to the fact that he sodomized him or that he castrated him? But the Mefarshi Rashi understand that according to all opinions, he castrated him for the sole purpose of preventing him from procreating once more, producing new children with whom Chum would have to share the world when he inherits it. So he didn't want to do that. There is a, an approach. Um, I originally heard it from Rabbi Yed Shalom, um, but um, quoting from the Sefer Torah of Elohim, um, that's Rabbi Wolf Holdenheim. Um, I believe actually the name is Heidenheim, Rabbi Wolf Heidenheim, the Sefer Torah of Elohim. And in that Sefer, um, he suggests a, a shot that Canaan was actually born from a union, and this story is actually about the union between Chum and, and Noah's wife. Um, it's a big thing to suggest um, that this, this Sefer um, was, uh, was published in the 1700s, I believe. But anyway, um, and he reads it in, and Canaan was apparently born from that union, which was why Noach cursed him. But that's a much less famous source. Um, but anyway, that's uh, but there are a bunch of different ways to understand the story. Um, or I would say there are a couple of different ways to understand the story, and they're all very dubious. But okay, that's the story of Noach in the vineyard. Then... Section three, we have more lineage. This is the lineage of Yafes, Chum, and Shem, in that order, the three sons of Noach. And then four, we get to the story of Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Bavel, and ultimately the dispersion of mankind. Hashem creates a language barrier, spreads them about. And then finally, section five, we get to the lineage, the ten generations between Shem and Avraham, or at that time he was known as Avram. So we have um, Avram and his wife at the time, Sarai. We know, we know them today as Avraham Avinu and Sarah Imenu. But we meet them at the very end. We learn about Sarai's barrenness, and that kind of paves the way for Plan C, which we'll get in, in Parshas Lechacha. But in the meantime, the questions that we have to understand is, 
and again, when I, when I have critical thinking questions, I said this last time in Boratius, I try to give critical thinking questions that are obviously thought-provoking questions that you kind of have to answer when you're going through the Parsha, but also I want to give you um, a, a questions that ultimately can be weaved together with one overarching theme. And last week, the overarching theme was the goodness of God. If God is so good, why would he do X, Y, and Z? And we proceeded to explain God's plan in creation and how it manifested itself in the affairs of mankind. Now, today, we're going to talk about God's intervention in the affairs of mankind. Right, God does a lot of intervening. He brings a flood because he has to stop this generation. Then he brings some kind of force that creates a dispersion because, again, I have to stop what's happening in mankind. Now, we, I want to understand these topics, and we're going to understand them on the, on the, um, on the backdrop of the following questions. The first question is, God seems quite fickle seems to change his mind in the story of creation. On the one hand, he creates the world and then says, you know what, better yet, this is not a good idea. That's what it sounds like. God decides that it's not a good idea. He wants to destroy the world. And then at the very end of destroying the world, he says, you know what, look at the carnage. This was pretty bad also. Let's not do that again either. And it makes you wonder, why did God change his mind? Quote, unquote. Did God, you know, if, why would God resolve to destroy the world? Why would he resolve to never do it again? Was the flood a mistake? What exactly changed? The other question we have to address is why, after everything, did God go out of his way to intervene in the Dor HaFlaga, the, the generation of the dispersion? Why was the Migdal Bavel such a threat? Why was that such an insult? What was so egregious about them building a dumb tower? So we'll have to come back to that. And then... All of these bring us to the final question, which is, apparently, again, God had a plan A, a plan B, and now a plan C for creation. Plan A was embracious. Plan B is what we find in the beginning of Noah, and then, for some reason, Hashem is still not happy. We have these two generations now, the Dor HaMabel, the Dor HaFlaga, um, two failed generations, apparently, and it makes you wonder, you know, what exactly... Um, is the progression between these two generations. Um, there seems to maybe have been some kind of improvement between the two generations, but I think that there is uh, something um, important to consider here, and that is that there are, there's a, a lot, and I think a lot has been written on this, but there's a lot of overlap between the two generations. Consider the, the two of the key words in the two generations, Mabul and Bavel. Mabul and Bavel both have from, uh, from the Lushan of Balal, which means to mix up, the flood, or often translated, or the word Mabul is often translated as deluge, and that also means a mixing up of things. And then we have the dispersion, which was another kind of mixing up of things. Um, you know, Chazal talk about the difference between the Ben Adam Lachavero sin of the Dor HaMabal and the Ben Adam Lamakom sin um, of the Dor HaFlaga. So we have a sin between man and his friend and then between man and God. So there are connections. There's what to discuss here. But again, what exactly is this interplay between the two generations? And Hashem again has to say, he has to set up plan C apparently from this failed Plan B. So the question is, what, what exactly was wrong with Plan B, the generation of the dispersion? Um, and what exactly went, again, what exactly went wrong? And how exactly does Hashem set up the world for Plan C, which apparently is Avraham Avinu? How does, how does that happen through the dispersion? So let's, let's go back to the idea of Hashem's intervention in the affairs of mankind. 
So we have to believe that if Hashem is intervening in the affairs of mankind, it's because there really is no other option. Or at least in God's mind, in God's plan, that's the, like, this is the best possible way to, to navigate the world. And if, if, if we wouldn't have to, we wouldn't. You know, we, we try, Hashem doesn't try to openly intervene and perform such miracles. In fact, that is Ramban on this parsha. The Ramban says this regarding Noah building the Teva in the first place. If God was going to create a miracle, that somehow Noah was going to fit all of the animals onto the Teva. And, you know, bearing in mind that this, this um, ark, and Ramban says even 50 of a similar model, would not be able to accommodate all of the animals of the world, uh, or even uh, at least um, two of each animal in the world. And obviously, we know for the kosher animals, it was seven. So, considering that, um, Hashem had to do a miracle anyway. So, why not just build a sailboat, build a, you know, build build a raft? It's going to be a miracle anyway. And the answer is that wherever God is able to, God tries to minimize the miracles. So, what that means is that wherever God intervenes, it's for a very good reason. It's for a very good purpose. So. Hashem intervenes in the affairs of mankind because he has to guide creation. What that assumes is that wherever there's drastic intervention, there has to be um, a drastic reason for it. That, again, God has to guide, the, guide his plan. So, last week we explained that if God decided to destroy the entire world, it must have been because that's what he had to do. Right? The, the, the entire plan of creation was defeated. We said that the whole purpose of creation was to bestow the ultimate good. Definitionally, the ultimate good had to have its counterpart, the ultimate bad. And definitionally, the ultimate good has to have the participation of the recipient. Right? This is all al Kabbalah, that the recipient has to do something to earn that good. And if the recipient is not going to choose the ultimate good, and therefore there's only going to be ultimate bad, then there's no purpose to the world. So God decided to destroy the world. Great. Well, not so great, but we could at least understand it. So then why would Hashem decide to never destroy the world again? And this, is, this, is, this is where we got stuck here. And actually, Rav Hirsch rephrases the question in his own way, um, that if you look at when God expresses the reason for, God destro- um, for his destruction of the world, he says, He says, um, There's a slight alteration in the Lushan. Um, I believe it says um, that the, the, the machshavos, um, the Yetzer of the Machshavos of man are rock, rock, kalayom. It's only evil all day. And Rav Hirsch points out, but yeah, look at when Hashem says, I'm never going to do this again. He says, Ki Yetzer Adam ra urav. That the inclination of man's heart is evil from its youth. Sounds very similar. Man is evil, I'm going to destroy the world. Man is evil, I'm not going to destroy the world. So what exactly does that mean? It sounds like the reason for the destruction is the reason for the never doing it again. So Rav Hirsch already um, says that when Hashem says, I'm not going to destroy, the man, uh, destroy mankind again, he's not saying because man is evil from his youth, because that sounds like, again, the same reason why he destroyed the world in the first place. He says that word ki means even though. So on the one hand, we, we can at least understand the phrase, but it is still a bit strange because... It doesn't help us understand the fickle aspect of God. It does help us understand the Pasuk, right? It's not, it can't possibly be that for the same reason that God destroyed the world, he's going he's to never do it again. Because again, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's a self-contradiction. So he says that it means, even though he's so bad, I'm never going to do it again. 
Though there is something to think about in this double, you know, this this lashon. The the two the two expressions sound very similar. Again, at the end of Bereshis in Perik Vav of Bereshis, um, uh, Hashem says that 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 he sees evil all day. That's what he sees for mankind. And then when there's only Noach left, he says the inclination of man's heart is evil from its youth. So I think there's something to um, observe about these two expressions. They're not quite identical. Right, the, the the inclination of man is evil all day. That's a report of what you are observing right now, right? Hashem, Hashem, uh, may, uh, he takes a look at the world, and he, this is what I see. Yitzchel Levadam Rami Rav is kind of retrospective. It's a historical, you know, it's ascertaining about mankind that, after all, his inclination is bad from the time that he's very young. You know, the Pashat, at least Pashat read of that of that verse. That's in that's in Perik Ches of Bereshis, if you want to look it up. So there, it seems to be a view that kind of cuts slack for mankind. Meaning it's saying, well, after all, he is at a disadvantage. The first time around, and this is how you can read the two psukim. The first pasuk is saying, I'm looking at the world, I'm only seeing evil. And God is obviously not cutting slack for mankind, but he's saying, well, listen, what, what, what else can I do? The, the flood is absolutely necessary. After the flood, Hashem says, after all, man is at a disadvantage, so maybe I should cut him some slack. He has an evil inclination from the time he's very young. Now, still, what about the aspect of God being fickle? So I think a very simple answer to this is that, you know, it's not really called fickle, but part of theology, we accept that there are two perspectives on everything. There's, you know, the down the cuff, schus, um, perspective of I'm going to be merciful right? we, in, even in our, in our Rosh Hashanah davening we say that Hashem remembered Noah and even though everything was all bad but Hashem remembered him he was going to do good at the end of everything that we, when we ask for Hashem's mercy we always talk about this concept of Hashem getting up from his seat of din and sitting onto his seat of Rachamim to judge and give us Rachamim so in fact, Rashi says this in, in creation, that there's the two names, Hashem and Elohim, Yudke Vavke and then Elohim. Yudke Vavke, Hashem, is the name of mercy. And when Hashem created the world, he was just Elohim, Rashi's Bar Elohim. But when he created Adam, it, um, we, there's an inclusion of the name Yudke Vavke. So it's not just Hashem's name of judgment, but it's Hashem's name of mercy. And Hashem intervened at this particular point to say that, yes, you know, right now, Al Din, this world deserves to be destroyed. And he destroyed the world. And that was not a mistake. That needed to happen. But Hashem can say for future generations uh, that I'm going to use Rachman now because I need to guide history. I need to guide life in such a way that you know, if, if, I, if, I, if, I, if I strike man with a lightning bolt every single time, so we might never reach the ideal. And so how then does Hashem get to the next stage? So let's talk about that now. Hashem intervenes in the Dor Haflaga. And this is very strange because again, the people built a tower, and so what? Who really cares? What was the egregious sin of the Dorha Flaga? Why would Hashem go out of his way to, uh, to intervene here? So right away, I'll just mention a few Marmakomos. There's a Rashbats, there's the Abarbanel, there's a Ran. They all say a very similar answer, that there, may, there might not have even been a sin. Or, you know, um, not, not indeed, and maybe not even a sin in machshava, not even in thought. However, the generation did demonstrate a dangerous hashkafa. They were unified, as Chazal say. They had some kind of an achdos, some kind of unity. But it was a kinesia shalolashem shemayim. 
It was a gathering that was not for the sake of heaven. This is obviously evident when you look at Rashi and the Midrashim on this story. And we'll see that Hashem was not destroying a debased society, a morally debased society. It seems that this society was not so bad. Chazal make this differentiation. They were able to navigate. They were able to work together. That's, in fact, what they did when they built the tower. So then what was so wrong? So the Chumash says that they manifested these Devar Machadim. Devar Machadim means matters of oneness. So Pashab Shah, it's that there's an Achdas. But Rashi quotes the Midrash, three different explanations of what this phrase means. We're going to talk about all three of these, exp- um, all these explanations. And although they, they, they differ in nuance, I want to look at what they all have in common. Maybe you'll notice it as we go through it. The first one, Rashi says, Devar Machadim, means that they had a single plan. Achadim, they had one plan in mind. What was that plan? To do war with God. They wanted to build a tower and somehow fight God up in the heavens. This is going to be a problem in a second. And if you don't already notice the problem, it'll be evident very soon. The second um, explanation in Rashi is, is, what is Devar Machadim? There are matters pertaining to the Yehudo Shal Olam, the oneness in the world, the unique one in the world, God. They were, they were somehow unclear, maybe it was only symbolic, but they were challenging the oneness of God. And somehow the unity of man was challenging the uniqueness, the unity of God. And the third explanation we have that this generation said, what, no, what, what is the Dvarim Achadim? Dvarim Achadim. Dvarim achadim refers to sharp words, right? Dvarim achadim. They had a sharp plan. What was their plan? They made a calculation, very simple calculation. They said, what year was the flood? The flood was in the year 1656 of creation. So they said, every 1656 years, right, every 1656 years, and this is from the gracious Rabbah in Tanchuma, they say every 1656 years, there's a flood. The, the firmament collapses, and then there's a flood. Therefore, we must build a tower. They say, you know, if, if the science is correct, there'll be another flood um, in, the, in, you know, in, in another 1656 years from the time of the flood, and therefore we got to do something to stop it. We're going to build a tower, and we are going to put up supports, and this will never happen again. Okay, so now that we understand this, there's a problem with at least explanation number one and number three. Number one and number three. Number one is that they want to do war on God. Number three is they want to prevent the flood. Problem with explanation number one is that, like, what are we kidding? They're going to build a tower, climb to the heavens, and then what? As far as, far as they can go physically. I don't even know if they can reach the, um, the outer space. Let's say they reached outer space. They would die there. They would, they would have no oxygen. They would die. They probably wouldn't make it that far. So God doesn't have to worry about he God's incorporeal. He doesn't have a body. There isn't, there isn't going to be a fight. There isn't going to be a war. So what is God doing? Why does he care? Does God have to intervene in every act of, um, you know, narishkeit, every act of shtus, every act of idiocy? There's a, there's actually a line in the Gemara pertaining to Avodah Why doesn't God destroy all all of the Avodah Zaras? And and in the Gemara, the sages respond um, to the heretics, God has to intervene in every act of idiocy. So, in fact, why? Why does God have to intervene in this act of idiocy? Let's go to explanation number three. Explanation number three, they say, oh, scientific explanation, 1656, there's going to be a flood in the next, uh, you know, the next, uh, uh, next cycle, 
right? Uh, that's a problem with our climate, that there's going to be a flood. So we'll do something to prevent it. We know that God said he's never going to bring a flood again. So if God said he's never going to bring a flood again, this you know, scientific intervention is also silly. And even if there would be a flood again, it would be silly. It wouldn't work. But we know that that's not even going to happen. So what was God's problem? Let these people be stupid. You know, as long as they're getting along, right? So here's how we understand the problem with this generation and what God was trying to prevent. The Devar Machadim, this unity. This unity was fundamentally flawed because as we said earlier, it was a Knesia Shalol Shemayim. What all of the three Pshatim and Rashi have in common is that they are all challenging God and they're all challenging God in, in similar but different ways. Right, the, the second explanation that they were just challenging is oneness. So that's, that's vague enough. But the, the first shot that they're going to do war with God, guess what? They're going to go up to space or as far as they can go, and they're going to say, listen, God, we're here. We're ready to fight you. And what would they accomplish by doing that? They wouldn't find you know, an old man with white long hair and a long white beard who looks like Albus Dumbledore. They're not going to find that up there. And, of course, if we would think that something like that should be, you know, then um, that's obviously heretical. We don't believe in that. So they would climb up there and they would say, look, there are no monsters in the closets, no monsters under the bed. There is no God. That is the war that they seem to have been waging against God. They would conclude that there's no God. And how about the third explanation, the explanation about stopping a future flood? You'll notice that there is something that is absent from this scientific concern that they raise. The absence is the absence of God. They do not mention anywhere here that there was a God who brought a flood and would never do it again. What this shows you is they believed in apparent tradition that there was a flood. And I'll tell you, it wasn't tradition they believed in. They believed in scientific reality that couldn't be denied. They all were descendants of flood survivors. They all knew there was a flood but they would not accept the religious implications of that flood. That a flood came because God decided that the world had become so corrupt and therefore it couldn't function and needed to be flooded. They didn't accept that. And they didn't accept apparent tradition of faith from Noah that God was never going to bring a flood again. We know that that was never going to happen. God said he's not going to do it. God made a bris with mankind. So now we're stuck. Or, you know, we're really, we're really not stuck. But we understand that this generation was a generation that was stuck. What were they stuck in? They were stuck in the advent of their own technology. They were stuck in the advent of their own sense of, quote-unquote, we are stronger together. We can do this. We can do anything. This is actually what God says. God looks at mankind and says, they will not be stopped if they try to do anything. What does that mean? Why, why is God so concerned about that? The answer is that once they are in a society that is governed by the power of man, the power of united mankind, that is not a unity that is intrinsic. It's not L'Shem Shemayim. It's a selfish unity. It's conformity. It's, I can get what I need if, you know, if, if I work with you. It's not that I love you or care about you. And not only that, but it's a society that believes that everything is a human convention. We create everything, the power to man. Science is governed by truths that man accepts. 
The problem is that science is also the product of man. Everything in their eyes is the product of man. It's just how we perceive things. And if that's true, everything is a human convention. Gender is a human convention. Morals are a human convention. We can decide our own morals. And in a society that says whatever we decide in a majority rules, you can eventually have the anarchy of another Dor Hamabel, but only more dangerous because this time God already said he's not going to destroy it. So this is something that Hashem says I must do something about because if I do not do something about this, then mankind will, even if they're not failing right now, you know, even though they're not morally debased now, but the fact that they are religiously debased, they have no Yeras Shemaim of any sort, the only way to get through this generation is I have to disperse them. So Hashem creates a language barrier, he spreads them about. If the unity is real, guess what? The language barrier is something they will be able to overcome. But this unity was not real. So Hashem says, I have to fight this quote-unquote war on science. Right? Not, not, not actual science, but the religion of science. And what ultimately Hashem does is, again, he breaks up their science lab, their Migdal project, and says, try again. Try again. And in so doing, he gives them the opportunity to have dissent. There's something good about dissent. right? If you're not doing everything that other people are doing, so you have the option of actually thinking about what's, what's right and just not what's popular. And maybe that'll help us a little bit understand God's plan C when we get to Avraham. And if you are not catching my drift, you'll have to tune in next time for Parsha Panorama, Parsha Slechlecha. Thank you so much for joining.